Welcome to Japan on Fire 27 on Hideo Gosha's Onimasa, a Japanese godfather. And we're gonna cover a little bit of the 60s and the 70s, but mainly we jump ahead to the 80s resurgence of our director Gosha. Different style of filmmaking to a degree, different topics and characters uh, established to craft character-based drama. And that takes place in Onimasa, a Japanese godfather. And... Perhaps we will reach the views later, but in my eyes, this is the talk of uh, the most gentle Hideo Gosha movie to date, in our examination anyway. So uh, we'll see if uh, my co-host agrees with that, and uh, we'll see what uh, gentle connected to Gosha is, is all about. Because if you're a fan of him, you know that gentle is not necessarily the attack of choice. <laughs> so uh, anyway, my name is Kennedy, and with me, as always, to school me on all things Japanese cinema and... Uh, also, in his words, the underappreciated Hideo Gosha is the cinema's coffin. John, good morning, buddy. Hey, Kenneth. How's it going? Good to be back. It's been uh, almost a year since our last recording, I think, right? Lazy, lazy bastards. They call us. No, 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 no. <laughs> Life, I'm, I record other podcasts and uh, all of a sudden, boom, many months pass. But uh, hey, we're, we're devoted to the series. Um, not right. sure if this is the next to last one. It, it might be because we've... I've, I've let you plan it in terms of what are the beats in the career to hit. You know, we, we, we've uh, gone through the samurai era. We're gonna hit some, hit upon some yakuza of the of the sixties and seventies. But uh, here we are in the eighties and uh, a, a different kind of yakuza movie, I suppose. But certainly um, a different decade after he uh, sort of lost his stride in the seventies. Uh, for a while, we'll we'll obviously talk why that is but uh, yeah on his third decade as a director and uh, i think he worked up until the 90s so he did a uh, uh, solid four four decade long so to say or hit upon four decades uh, in his career so not too bad but uh, oh let me just ask you spontaneously are, are a lot of these gosha movies like rewatches or, or a couple of ones new experiences for you because i gather you knew of him had a few movies in the memory bank, but uh, have have some or one or two been uh, new viewings for you? Yeah, I think, you know, Gosha is one of those directors who, um, you know, if you're into Japanese film, you sort of get into him as like the uh, like a in the second layer of directors. You know, the first layer, you know, usually ends up being like Kurosawa, Ozu, you know, Kinji Fukusaku, etc. But I think once you start digging a little deeper, you do get into Gosha. And, uh, you know, it's nice. Actually, I should add that. um Criterion is finally giving Gosha some uh, exposure, so now I think that he won't be as uh, possibly won't be as in, underappreciated uh, as he has been. And um, you know, with that said, um, you know, most of these films, I would say like half the films are rewatches, and then uh, half are you know brand new experiences. Well, uh, I know Criterion have had more titles in uh, the streaming library than what was on disc. But does that mean that uh, some more discs are coming out of um, movies we haven't seen before on DVD? I mean, we would assume so. I, I mean, I think it would be kind of strange to just buy the streaming rights for yeah. a film and not have plans for, you know, a full release, especially given that Criterion, you know, is a boutique label that, um, you know, kind of caters to the, the whole market or what's left of it, really. 
So, you know, we would assume that, uh, you know, there's something coming down the line, you know, if it's not actual criterion releases, like, for example, like, uh, you know, we did have a, a couple of releases that we talked about uh, in uh, the previous episode that were uh, on criterion, uh, Sword of the Beast and uh, Three Outlaw Samurai. And, you know, we would assume that, uh, you know, and they those really those films are kind of. I don't want to call them so much lesser films of Gosha's, but they're ones that are a little lower profile. So, um, you know, ones like, uh, you know, there are ones that that they have that I, I think would be really great to have in their library. If if not, uh, you know, the Criterion Library or at least the um, the uh, what's the name of that other um, label that they have that does the box sets. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head right I, now. I, yeah, I know what you mean, but I, I, I can't think of it. Eclipse. Yeah, Eclipse. That's yeah, it. Eclipse. Are. Yeah, I mean, at least you know they might have themed um, box sets from you know Gosha, the Samurai Years, or something like that. You know, like, kind of like how we're theming our episodes. At least we have two or three more extra ones that at least were on Hulu. They're gonna be on Filmstruck, I suppose. Like movies like Hunter in the Dark. Yeah, his late seventies right. movie. That's a Criterion title, and they he they have like an eighty-five movie in there that I don't remember the title of, but uh, it covers like uh, a spectrum. Their, mm-hmm. uh, yes. their their movies they've picked up and uh, U- U- U.S. rights uh, are you know with other companies as well. So, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, cool, cool, cool. But we'll uh, get this one going. Then, but first, some quick contact information. This is Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network, and this show is located on podcastonfire.com and uh, we have plenty of other shows, including ones on Hong Kong cinema, Korean cinema, sleazy cinema, ninja cinema, stuff that matters, kids. You know, the Ninja Cinema one, that's coming to a conclusion, you know, because there's only so much you can talk of. Uh, we're doing like 16 in total of the Godfrey Hall stuff. So, uh, kids, he's, uh, there's going to be one show less on the network. <laughs> I'm not going to create uh, create any anymore. I'm going to deduct one, essentially. But uh, regardless, you have uh, an archive over there and uh, your choices. So make your pick. If you have any questions or feedback, what's your favorite Gosha movie? Let us know. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com. Also interact with us on social media. We have handy buttons at the top of our website. First leading to our Facebook page. And uh, once you're there, leave a like and support. And then search your way to the discussion group called Podcast on Fire Network. Yeah, where we post most show updates and uh, have a good, good, well-natured and good-natured discussions on a variety of things. Hong Kong cinema or Japanese cinema. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, there's a button to that. There's also a button to our iTunes feed. So if you are an iTunes user, subscribe, leave a star rating, or even a written comment if you have something to say about the show. And finally, click the Stitcher Radio button if you want to stream our shows. The button leads to their website presence, but the best way to stream us on the go is through uh, downloading of their uh, free applications available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And I write about uh, mainly Hong Kong and Taiwanese cinema over at SoGoodReviews.com. I post basic spoken audio video reviews on SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. This cinema, my friend, um, you are out there posting news, supporting us as well, linking to our show, so that's always appreciated, even if you are not uh, the one that uh, do all the daily links uh, and so forth. But uh, we're very appreciative towards vCinema regardless. But what is vCinema, Coffin John? So uh, vCinema is a website. Cool. That's it. Th- that's um, exciting. <laughs> yeah, we cover Asian cinema just r- all across the board, not not just genre stuff, but uh, you know all, all kinds of things, all eras, um, all regions of Asia, essentially. 
we are not not necessarily a um, uh, a site that's completely thorough. I would say you know we do kind of uh, focus more on the Western audience as far as you know what the Western audience wants to see. Uh, you know activities are happening that uh, are more in of interest to the Western audience. Um, but that includes things like you know film festivals, upcated, uh, upcoming excuse me directors. You know, different events of note and whatnot, um, including, of course, tons and tons of uh, film reviews. So um, our site's at uh, vcinema show. That's S H O W dot com. And uh, we are also on um, Facebook. We have a very active Facebook page. We do a lot of um, kind of news aggregating from all different kinds of sites and whatnot. Uh, sort of try to uh, come off as a enthusiast of. Uh, Asian cinema, not just, uh, you know, being inclusive and whatnot. And, well, of course, we have a Twitter feed, which is a V Cinema show. Um, again, S-H-O-W. You can keep up, again, with the latest news. Most of the stuff that goes on the Facebook feed actually goes on to the Twitter feed. So that's um, – if you're on one, you can – you're technically a member of both, sort of. So You're a member. You like it and you like yeah, it and deal with exactly. it. Exactly. Your card-carrying member, whether you like it or not, boy. Uh, who's uh, who's going to be responsible for the Ghost in the Shell remake review, if not you? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, to be honest, I haven't reviewed anything on the site in a long time. Um, uh, I guess you could call me the executive producer because I'm the one that pays the bills for the uh, for the site and whatnot. But, um, you know, um, I do have some plans to actually review some stuff because cause I, do, I, I, I do have a little free time, I guess, sort of now and then, you know, so it's like I, and I do write even though I don't uh, pu- publish very much on my own site. You know, I still take notes on a lot of stuff. So so I do kind of feel a little uh, amiss to say that um, it's probably not going to be me. Someone will eventually review it. I'm absolutely sure. I'm not too sure who it will be. Um, you know, certainly that's the big focus in uh, Asian and Asian American cinema right now is that uh, that remake. And it's so far, you know, I mean, this is uh, to date this um, this podcast. You know, this is what the first weekend that the film's been out and. It's gotten some okay reviews. It's gotten some bad reviews too. So it's kind of it looks like it. Some punny reviews as well, which I immediately right. click away. Like Ghost in the Machine, more like Ghost in the Machine. Ugh. Are you fourteen <laughs> years old? Jesus. Like, uh, I remember that uh, he's uh, passed away, unfortunately, now, but he was a, a movie critic for TV, uh, He, an American movie critic, and he, he, I don't know if his trademark was punny things, but that's what he did at one point anyway, and he talked of one of the 15 Pirates of the Caribbean movies, God knows which one, and someone said, like, what's the rating of it? It's rated R, <sighs> which it isn't, but... So, and, uh, you know, I, I can't take film criticism that sort of um, is punny. I, I can't take that seriously. To be honest, I can't. Because it's just uh, it's just uh, clickbait kind of uh, film criticism, really. Um, you know, but, right. but but that's just me. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's gotten middling reviews. So I think uh, that's uh, that's yeah. certainly true. But I'm going out to see it uh, um, if, I, if I can catch a 2D screen. Because if anything, man, because... He he don't come around that much to our horns. I want to see Kitano. I want to see Kitano on the big screen. I have, I have never seen Takeshi Kitano on the big screen, so that, that, that's motivation for me. So, but uh, let's uh, let's see what happens uh, when this podcast is out. We know in real life what's the uh, commercial verdict on it, so to say. 
Well, maybe we should do a uh, bonus episode one day. Yeah, at least when it comes uh, to uh, streaming, because uh, I, because I, I won't make notes in, uh, at the cinema. I certainly can't keep notes in my head. Uh, right. So uh, that's an option. I wouldn't mind. So we'll, we'll see. Right. We'll see what happens. Uh, let's uh, do a little bit of rundown of what's to come. Uh, we have a couple of sections coming up. So here's your heads up in terms of uh, what is uh, coming up. And I will post timestamps for each section on the in the show post rather so you can navigate freely uh, in the episode first we resume the Hideo Gosha biography that will uh, take us up to the acclaim and success of uh, Onimasa and we then briefly talk of uh, two movies in our quick take section 1966 1966's how we say it regardless it was made in 1966 it's called Cash Calls Hell and also 1974's Violent Streets that is followed by some production background on our main movie, Onimasa. And finally, our review and discussion of the movie concludes the episode. Uh, we, we call this section Hideo Gosha, the story continues. Uh, so we, we've done the biography in bits and pieces uh, during each episode. And when we last talked of him, 1969's Hitokiri produced perhaps his finest work to date. And that's the movie we covered last time. And he felt himself that he'd taken steps forward as a filmmaker, even if the critics weren't all praising him, which is not something filmmakers are blessed with that uh, you're, you're, you're universally liked, but um, some were harsher than others, I suppose. He kept himself involved in the industry and specifically uh, TV as well, but was never really able to replicate earlier success. Uh, in the early 70s, for instance, audience tastes were changing and not even a revived free outlaw samurai TV series helped to create you know, an upswing and eventually uh, Fuji Television phased out the likes of uh, Gosha after they did some reshuffling uh, uh, at the company. He, uh, in movies, though, because he worked a little bit at least, uh, a couple of Yakuza productions for Toho uh, happened. Uh, they were trying to cash in on Daiei's popular line of uh, Yakuza epics. Uh, and movies like The Wolves and Violent Streets uh, were among those he produced. Uh, they unfortunately failed at the box office, though. And, uh, and, and it's around this time in the mid-70s that, that the career of Gosha was arguably at a standstill, both in TV and film. You know, he wasn't part of that star director crowd there was no star status anymore and and that star director crowd that that came mainly from fuji television they, they had a couple of directors that were their big directors and uh, gosha was uh, part of that it certainly didn't help his career that certain of his uh, movies were flops as well because um, if you're not a money maker and generator it's not easy to get uh, projects continually off the ground uh, he was making documentaries for fuji though and um but, but for whatever reason, I would love to read a full story of this someday. He was the, the victim of a smear campaign by the media who claimed Gosha was accepting bribes after a TV or a movie shoot. And he also apparently had friends or mild connections, maybe, in the world of Yakuza. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't belonging to a group or anything. But uh, those connections being known probably fueled this smear campaign. But it also affected the ability even more. You know, he he wasn't just uh, producing flops. Now he had this over his uh, over his head looming over him as well. So projects were difficult to get off the ground as uh, uh, as these things go. I mean, had you ever heard of that before in terms of his career that uh, there was uh, they, they were gunning for him, so to say? I did read a little bit on some uh, Japanese pages that uh, had some reference to. Um... I guess the fact that, uh, you know, he was uh, possibly being targeted. I kind of feel like um, just the information I got was not significant enough for me to say, like, well, 
a lot of celebrities get targeted, you know, I mean, a lot of directors and whatnot. Um, so, and, you know, even having a rumor of having some sort of Yakuza connection, uh, I don't know, that's a lot of people get that uh, kind of stuck on them. You know, I, th- I think it's just one of those things it's, you know, like or not, I mean, at least back in those days, up until possibly like the 80s and, you know, even even up until now, I guess, you know, it's like it's if you're making money and if you're a high enough profile person, then then um, you're going to be somehow associated with the Yakuza, whether you like it or not. You know, it could be through your you know management company, through your agent. You know, there's probably going to be some indirect uh, connection because. You know, wherever the money is, that's where the Yakuza are, you know. And, you know, now, you know, even more recent days, you know, they are trying to become more legit in their ways, you know. Um, so it's, you know, it's not as if um, you can completely avoid it, I think, in, in the Japanese society, at least, you know. Yeah, it certainly connects to Hong Kong as well. Uh, triads were fueling the uh, the industry commercially for a while, and uh, you, you could therefore you know have many star appearing triad finance productions but it wasn't the kiss of death for their right. careers or anything right. it was just the way it is it was not like they were killing each other left and right in order to get stars in, into their uh into their stable so say there was some um some in- instances i mean jet lee's manager i think was uh, murdered uh, over over a business like this um at one point right. so it's happened but it's not like it's running rampant in hong kong too but uh, after this long period of smear campaigns and aborted projects, uh, Gosha surged back to fame with Bandit vs. Samurai Squad and Hunter in the Dark in 1978 and 1979, respectively. The content of uh, the former, which is a samurai movie, uh, as expected, has been interpreted as Gosha conveying a vengeful message against society and uh, to, uh, you know, to, and to redeem his honor was uh, sort of baked in there. E- even though he did change the literary work that it was based on to such a degree that the original author was uh, offended and went on to say, quote, why didn't Chuchiko hire a better director? Uh, production problems aside, including a falling out with um, the cinematographer and... Uh, and the movie shooting with four units in total is, sounds quite busy. It did fare well commercially. And uh, that was Bandit vs. Samurai Squad. But Hunter in the Dark, uh, which is a Criterion uh, title actually, was notable for being quite a decadent uh, Chambara movie with sex scenes and uh, bloody violence. And, and it is said to be the last big Chambara film of Gosha's with a big focus on male characters. And we certainly see a change in Onimasa to a more broader focus on both women and men and uh, the movies we've covered they've been sort of male-centric if women were in there they weren't uh, the center point they were more functional if anything you know i don't remember but if they appeared maybe they were prostitutes or geishas or or what have you but, uh, you know, instincts developed in the past, such as in Hitakiri, was uh, really coming to the forefront in uh, Hunter in the Dark, it said. And also, that decade, you know, 70s turned to 80s, it was the start of a, it said anyway, I mean, I haven't examined it all, uh, as it was the start of a more of an unhinged nature to his cinema. And uh, as Gosha really expressed that in, in some shape or form throughout the movie, so Onimasa necessarily isn't unhinged in that regard, but uh, as I get to those movies hunter in the dark for instance my, i might see more of that you know uh his no no holds barrel barred uh, depiction of uh you know human passions and desires and probably violence being 
key elements and evidence of this, but uh, we'll certainly see. In his personal life, so sadly, his wife had been given away his money to bogus investors. I know it's not funny, but it seems like he was the had the worst bad luck in the 70s of any directors in Japan. And uh, Gosha landed a huge death in the process. His daughter was later involved in a near-fatal uh, traffic accident. And to top it all off, Gosha was arrested by the police after finding the finding of two guns at his home. And that was possibly tied to a smuggling case in the 60s. Uh, you know, and that essentially, at, at that point, uh, maybe late 70s, early 80s, essentially put an end to his career seemingly that if anything we talked of the of the yakuza connections well that's probably okay it's not the kiss of death of uh, of your career now it seemed like okay he's been arrested they found a gun things are not looking bright <laughs> but some people still believed in him for instance producer masayuki sato and toy president uh, shigeru okada they trusted gosha to work uh, to work for uh, for them though and that led to steady work in the 80s so so Gosha didn't go away for like an extended period of time uh, seemingly so he worked steadily in the 80s um, you know got some rejections from actors and actresses based on the rep that he had but he made movies such as Onimasa and the Geisha uh, bringing in themes across the board such as the love-hate relationship between men and women and Onimasa in particular went on to become a huge hit and earned act- actress Masako Natsume a blue ribbon award for best actress so gosha was back and he could write his own ticket essentially leading to steady work with uh, 12 films between 1982 and 1992 and reportedly six hits along the way so universe pays you back eventually so uh, that was a nice uh, nice thing to hear that's the career up to that point so i'm gonna hand it over to john because we're gonna do uh, some quick takes, some quick bite-sized reviews of uh, two movies from the 60s and 70s. And uh, the first one is the movie with a rather curious uh, English title anyway, Cash Calls Hell from 1966. But uh, in short, uh, John, I want to set up a little bit uh, what this uh, black and white movie is about. Well, you make a reference to the uh, quite odd English title. The The Japanese title is actually uh, Gohiki no Shinshi, which uh, is, uh, directly translates and quite ironically translates to The Five Gentlemen. And that's in reference to the five uh, main uh, characters of the story that um, are not quite gentlemen. So that's why I say, obviously, it's, it's an ironic title. So um, essentially, we have Oida, who's uh, played by our man uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, um, who, of course, we um, we talked about. We're going to talk about later in this episode uh, with uh, Onimasa, but we also talked about in last episode with uh, Goyo King, and he plays a man Oida, who is an ex-con. Um, he was put into prison by uh, essentially. Uh, uh, accused of manslaughter, or I should say, he was uh, convicted of manslaughter, uh, killing of a um, a father and child while he was uh, driving with his mistress. Uh, they got into an accident. He goes to jail. So anyway, once he gets out, or actually in jail, he um, runs into a character um, who uh, basically gets him involved in a long-standing promise uh, between. Uh, between that man and uh, four other men, uh, excuse me, three other men who are on the outside involving a uh, 30 million yen con from a Yakuza drug deal. So it's kind of the, the sort of setup where um, they've uh, gotten this money from, um, from the Yakuza. They hit it and then they say, okay, 
two years later, we're going to come back and we're going to claim this money again. So it's kind of, uh, I kind of felt like it was almost like a setup, very uh, kind of similar to, um, you might remember, uh, Goodfellas. There's the uh, Lufthansa heist um, uh, segment of that film. And, uh, you know, where they steal Don't the money and they say... Don't make me want to watch Goodfellas again, because I'm, I'm one of those guys. I'm, I'm, I'm watching that three hours straight or whatever. Like, it's such a good movie. I, I, right, exactly. I just got an image of Ray Liotta in the shower. Like, yes! You know, when he has the news on the radio. I'm sorry. Right, exactly. But, uh, I mean, Cash Calls Hell is definitely not on, in the same level as God uh, Goodfellas. But... Um, but uh, it's the same kind of setup where, you know, they steal a bunch of money and they have to lay low and wait a little bit. And then, you know, the person who's holding the money will basically uh, give the money back to the the participants. Uh, but, of course, we all know that doesn't end up very well, you know, both from Goodfellas and from Cash Calls Hell. And that's so, sort of a spoiler. Sorry about that. But uh, I think uh, if you watch the film, you can watch it play out uh, yeah, yeah, it's certainly a template that uh, that's universal. Any good? That's just like a basic question. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot, actually. Um, actually, I would say that uh, of the three films, that um, this one is the one that, um, at least in uh, at least for this viewing, uh, I probably enjoyed the most. Uh, and I say that because you know this film, as we established, I established through um, my. Um, brief plot um that uh, a lot of tropes you know my in my notes i put down you know there's basically every uh every down on your luck trope is represented in the film so we have of course the sort of heist situation um that we talked about we have a, a fallen boxer you know the boxer who's supposed to take the fall but then doesn't so he gets in trouble with the mob uh, we have the widow who comes becomes a prostitute. We have the orphan child. We have a police officer who falls for the wife of a criminal that he puts in prison. So it's basically every trope in the book is represented. It seems like in this uh, in this film, but um, somehow Gosha really makes it work. He, he he injects some energy into these uh, these tropes. You know, I mean, they're little. When you're watching the film, you think, oh, geez, you know, that's kind of stale, right? I haven't. I haven't seen this a million times before, but um, there's there's some energy that he puts into it. I think the energy comes from the performances of the of the uh, of the actors. You know, we have Nakadai, as as we said. Um, we also have um, the character uh, Sengoku, um, who is the man that he meets in prison, who's basically sort of the ringleader of this whole group uh, that uh, performed the heist, uh, played by uh, Mikijiro Hira, who of course we. Uh, we talked about last episode in uh, with uh, Sword of the Beast. Uh, he's the protagonist in that film. Uh, both of these guys, as well as the other supporting uh, um, actors, really, I think, inject a lot of um, energy into um, the film, which is, um, like I said, uh, with this watching, I kind of felt like uh, this was my favorite of the three films. Uh, kind of a surprise given that, um, you know, all three of the films were pretty strong, as we're going to be mentioning but uh, how about you? Uh... Yeah, it's it's an effective, stylish, gritty, raw little film, which is terms often used. We're talking Gosha, certainly Universal Cinema too, but it fits here for this little movie. It's a quite a, you know, it's a small movie, so it's its scope is easy to appreciate and all of that. 
Uh, and the twists and turns and the attempt at r- redemption, which we know is not going to happen, is is all compelling. The stark black and white photography works for me, and uh, sometimes the pronounced camera style, very loud camera style and loud movie, I suppose, it isn't forced. Uh, it becomes an a- atmospheric factor for this movie, which is largely very pessimistic. Uh, uh, money is the savior, so people will rather kill to uh, find uh, that achievement, you know, I'll unlock that achievement of money and everything will be set uh, for you in the world here. It's that kind of world, but it, it it all works and it helps to have it anchored by Tatsuya Nakirai and, uh, you know, he has many strengths, but those eyes are very expressive and, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, it was a few weeks since I watched it, he, he goes from a, a character that's on a mission, therefore quite cold, to someone warm and more and more humane, which he communicates very well. I mean, it's all in the eyes, and he certainly knew how to use them, but he was never too big uh, from the performances I've seen anyway. He always he balanced uh, balanced matters quite well. Uh, and Gosha is, I, I think, quite confident uh, making this little story, and uh, the violence and really action directing is quite top-notch for its time. There's some, some primal brawls here, and raw depths that is even, they're even more enhanced because it is shot in you know, beautiful scope, black and white. Uh, so those things add to me. So I thought it was uh, an, an effective little movie. And when I say little, it's not to diminish anything. It just feels like it's a contained movie in a way, right? So it's not a three-hour epic of, you know, childhood to adulthood and these violent events. No, it's contained. But uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. And uh, we won't do a big availability section, but I, I can just point you towards that. There's no official English subtitle version available currently. There's an expensive box set, several volume box set, put out in France of Gosha movies. And this one has been um, used to fan uh, by fan servers to fan subtitle. And uh, that's how I got to watch it. Uh, so it's out there in that regard. So Cash Calls Hell, that's that. Put to bed. A less odd title comes next. Uh, a very, uh, let's say, firm, frank, and to the point title. Violent Streets from 1974. Like, what could that be about? Well, right. John is here to tell us that. Well, the Japanese title also is very frank um, it, and very literal, too. It's uh, Boryokugai, which actually does translate to Violent Streets, um, which is, you know, as we were uh, actually uh, chatting a little bit yesterday, um, you know, Violent Streets, that, that's actually a good title for the film because violence is definitely at the forefront of this film. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Violent Streets um, has a very typical Yakuza plot. Um, it's... It's about two clans, one that's in the west, uh, namely Osaka, and one that's in the east, uh, namely Tokyo. And uh, both these clans are at war uh, with each other. And it's uh, regarding an incident that was sparked by the clan of a retired mobster, Egawa, who is played by Noboru Ando, who himself was an ex-Yakuza. Wow. Um, in real life, I should say. No, no, I was just saying, wow, uh, because uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of, uh, wow, his image, he kind of looks like... Why not? He, he looks like uh, he's fairly immersed for some reason. Like it's it's, it's uh, he matches what uh, the movie is uh, asking of him, I suppose. Right? Yeah. That's he has a very interesting story. He was a um, he was a yakuza. Uh, if I remember correctly, he was uh, based in Tokyo. I think he was actually based in Shibuya too. And um, he, at one point, was actually on the run, uh, both from police as well as Yakuza. And then um, you might notice in the film, you see this uh, this 
cut on his face that runs from the corner of his mouth to up his chin, mm-hmm. uh, not excuse me, not his chin, his cheek, uh, up to almost his ear, uh, almost uh, I guess you would call it a Joker cut by now, you know, Batman Joker, um, sort of that smile slash. Um, he's got that. That's real. <laughs> so that's that's not makeup at all. So that that's a real thing. So, yeah, his his uh, involvement in the yakuza before becoming a, a um, professional actor really brings a lot of gravitas to um, the yakuza films that he's in. And they have a and they have a consultant at the same time too. Right, exactly. He can feel very comfortable in the role. Um, he's basically, I would say, for this film, the anchor of the film. You know, because everything lies on him essentially putting in a good and fairly authentic performance given that the story itself is sort of a little on the cookie cutter side but he he does he definitely is the heavy uh, you know in that uh, particular role and part of the reason why you know he had a very illustrious career in uh, yakuza film in the you know, essentially the 60s and 70s i mean this film really has a somewhat of a kitchen sink approach to things because uh, I should mention my notes that I have um, basically that the gang's all here. So if you like Yakuza film, this film is actually a who's who as far as the actors go. As I mentioned, Noboru Ando is in the film. Uh, Bunto Sugawara puts in a um, small role as basically like an arms dealer. He's kind of sort of the comic relief of the film as well. Um, Akira Kobayashi, Asao Koike, Hideo Murota, Rikia Yasuoka. I know these are not names that you know very well, Ken. I know these aren't your buddies or anything, but uh, if you're a Yakuza film lover, then um, you know these are all the guys that you want to have in your film. And you know it really shows that you know again, just like um, Noborando, they all bring a certain gravitas to the film, which what is what makes it so successful. And in addition to that, we have a pair of interesting assassins who are sent out from, um, I guess to back up a little bit, you know, Noboro Ando's character, Egawa, was actually a member of the uh, Tokyo side Yakuza. And he was basically kicked out of the clan and kind of given this uh, Spanish-themed bar sort of as, a, as sort of like a consolation prize, I guess you could say. You know, in the end, since they discover that his group is the one that's been, you know, causing all this trouble, you know, they send assassins after him. Now, we had two, actually, there are two assassins. One, I kind of thought, uh, I don't know if you could, if you know the image um, or if you know the actor very well, uh, Ken, but one kind of reminded me of Yul Brynner. <laughs> Yeah, the King and I era, uh, Yul Brynner. And the other one is a uh, transvestite who has this fetish, I could, I guess you could say, for razors. And uh, just the, the two of them in the scene, especially in the scene where um, they're fighting uh, Egawa in the uh, chicken coop, which is probably one of the bloodiest battles in the entire film. But um, it just shows you how crazy 70s film could get at that time, you know, where you could have such a strange pairing of assassins going after um, an ex-Yakuza boss. It's it's one of those things that, yeah, that's one of those things where you think to yourself, yeah, okay, this is Japanese cinema, 1970s. It's, it's not yes. to be taken seriously this time, so just right. enjoy the over-the-top stylized, uh, like, like stylized exactly. elements uh, of, uh, of that. Exactly. So overall, I, I really enjoyed the film, though, um, as as a Yakuza film. Um, 
it kind of dragged at parts. I think the um, sort of romantic subtext were a little sometimes dull at times. You know, it's kind of the usual, you know, are you going to leave me type of stuff, you know. And um, But, uh, you know, as far as the uh, actual battles and fights themselves, they were just really uh, on the money. And like I said, there's there was one battle uh, in which um, Bunta Sugawara, who plays um, – plays a sort of arms dealer of sorts where he kind of tags along. Um, you know, that, that battle is a lot of fun, you know, I mean, we mentioned in our chat yesterday, you know, we get one shot of a man getting his face essentially blown off. And, um, and all the time uh, you got Bunta Sugar with his, uh, headphones on and just sort of, uh, tagging along and, you know, getting a good laugh out of things, you know, it's, it's, it's really a good, uh, comic relief. It's uh, what I got out of it too, but not in the. Uh, I I wasn't laughing at the movie, and uh, and obviously uh, you forgot the other star of the movie, violence. Yes, violence. Violent streets, right? <laughs> yep. Uh, all good fun. It it it's a bit too complex in terms of like there's so many twists and manipulation and all of that stuff. But still, you you, you get the gist of it, and uh, you re- realize that this movie exists for a showcase of. Uh, Yakuza versus Yakuza, and uh, the violence really turns crazy. And it, it, but it, but it's all a good slice of uh, Yakuza warfare, which isn't poignant, as I said. But uh, if anything, it looks like to me that Gosha is out to paint the screen red and portray the world in that ugly, grim, gritty manner, as he often does. Minus subtext that he and themes that he might have concerned himself with before. This seems like a little bit more of uh, okay. I was hired to do a genre movie. Let's do a genre movie, and uh, let's uh, let's just have a lot of fun because we can have a lot of fun with violence um, in terms of censorship and what have you. This is uh, we have. There's no huge restrictions on violence. Uh, clearly, no morals in the characters. Bad characters being bad towards each other. There will be a lot of blood, and uh, that character that you said that uh, the transvestite killer or whatever. <laughs> what was the dialogue that I need to kill in order to stay calm? I must see blood to, yeah, to be calm or something. I can't remember. Which just thinking. puts me in a good mood. That they, okay, this movie's going for that uh, <laughs> yeah. over-the-top aspect. Uh, it, initially, there's a kidnapping aspect of the movie, so there's a cool heist feel initially. And, um, you know, it's the classic, uh, classic cliches of a Yakuza wanting to give up that life and just focus on his club, but, you know, that's not going to work. And uh, there's actually a scene... Uh, I'm sure you spot spotted it, the spotlight scene, that it's it, there's a scene in a theater in Cash Calls Hell where they try to catch someone that's actually uh, pointing a spotlight to uh, to a theater stage, uh, which, which is his job. That's recreated in this one for some reason, which I guess is just Gorsha having a little bit of fun because it's certainly not the iconic scene of 1960s Japanese cinema. Let's create it right. in the 70s. It's just him. I remember doing that. Let's do it again. Well, you know, well, you know, it's funny. I think that if we wouldn't have watched these two films, you know, together for one episode, we probably would not even notice that. I, I guess maybe some he, who uh, some uh, Gosha historian maybe could have noticed that. Oh, hey, he basically recreated the same scene, you know, and wow, isn't that convenient? That kind of thing. But I, I don't think I would have really recognize that had not I not to watch the two films, you know, so close together. Because, because it's not. Um... Uh, the sequence of the movie that uh, where everything is on the line, uh, wherever anything, right? Um, and furthermore, so lots of broken bottle action that uh, showcases some really well executed gore, 
stylish gunplay and uh, you know it's not shallow lazy fun that desperately wants to matter and let's just do violence and we'll be cool right but it's an mm-hmm. aspect that's just rather exceptionally made and i don't i don't have that much experience with yakuza genre movies of this era so I mean, if they're all this good, I'm sure they're not. But uh, if this is what the the genre can offer up too, I'm sure the genre can offer up de- depth and poignancy. But if it can offer up this quality too, then I gotta explore more because this was fun. I would say this is a pretty typical Yakuza film for the era. Maybe a little more violent, but there are a lot of violent Yakuza films from this era. You know, I mean... The the real template, of course, is the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series, which is pretty violent. You know, maybe not as gory as um as this film, but there's plenty of you know gun battles and you know fist fights and whatnot. You know, I mean that's just part of Yakuza film for the time. You know, I, I think I made mention in a previous episode that um, in the 70s, you know, Yakuza films really took this turn. Uh, whereas, you know, in the 50s, 60s and before that, um, you know, Yakuza films were seen as uh, they, they called him Ninkyo Ega, which basically means a sh- chivalrous cinema. You know, the Yakuza was seen as, you know, this sort of, you know, knight in shining armor type um, who just happened to be, you know, a gambler, that kind of thing. But, you know, well, we can ignore that because he's such a great guy, you know, and he was sort of like the defender of the people and whatnot. And uh, no, but but he had a role out to kill each other. That that's what uh, battles without honor and humanity kind of showed that no, it's not like that. It's it's like this, and especially in the post-war, you know, resources were scarce and where money was hard harder to come by. You know, people were a lot more willing to do the less than lawful thing to you know to provide for themselves. And of course, you know, the more that you the more that you get, the more that you want. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, what gave birth to, you know, the the modern gangster. And I think that's, you know, true for, you know, a lot of countries, uh, you know, organized crime is that, you know, people who at once are disassociated with crime, but then because they know that they want to get that money, they want to get that power, you know, it's it's best to organize. But you know what, you know, it's like when you're in such an organization, you know, who can you really trust, right? It's the it's the den of thieves sort of uh, idea, you know, it's like, if we're all thieves, then, you know, aren't we in fact stealing from ourselves, that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, those were the quick things, my friend. And uh, let's move on to the Onimasa main, um, main review, a main portion of this episode. And uh, we're now in 1982, you know, post Gosha's uh, troubles with smear campaign and uh, being arrested by the police and now scoring uh, quite an acclaimed hit. Uh, so uh, John is here to tell us uh, what the plot of Onimasa is about. Uh, 140, 650 minutes of it. Not the entire of it, but it's a long movie. So, And um, we again have an interesting uh, Japanese title situation here. So the Japanese title of the film is uh, Kiryuin Hanaka no Shogai, which means the life of Hanako, Hanako Kiryuin. <laughs> kind of hard to say in, in in any case. Luckily, it's not a common name. Uh, so um, and this is based on a book, uh, the same title. This title is kind of ironic because it doesn't actually f- – the film doesn't actually focus on this particular character, Hanako. She's actually a kind of a, a smaller character in the film, although she's always sort of present in a way. And she plays a very key uh, role in uh, – which we'll probably talk about a little bit later on. Um, so the film could be described as an epic of sorts. In fact, uh, Animego uh, – 
gives the title Onimasa, a Japanese godfather, trying to evoke, you know, of course, the, the great godfather uh, trilogy. And, and and even better, by the way, this is not them, but they, they, they pulled a rather ludicrous quote, I'm sorry to say, from Time Out New York. Welcome to the Sopranos, Yakuza style, which is just, come on, it's not that, it's, it's not that kind of a fun movie at all. Yeah, right, exactly. It's, uh, you know, I, I talked about, um, you know, Yakuza films changing uh, from the uh, 40s and 50s and 60s into the 70s and into the 80s, they changed even further. Um, and I think that this film is sort of kind of a reflection of that change where, you know, the films became, yeah, they were still gangster oriented, but there was also drama involved with it uh, as 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 this film is uh, as well. But uh, anyway, back to the, back to the plot. Um, so despite the title, uh, which is again, the title of a book, uh, the protagonist is quite different than uh, that of the film. The film is actually the rise about the rise and fall of the Yakuza family. And they were located in the then called Tosa province, uh, which is now in modern day called the Kochi prefecture in, um, in uh, the Shikoku region of Japan. And the name of the clan is the Kiryuin clan. Again, a really tough uh, name to say. And in fact, one of the Japanese characters in the film actually kind of says like, what? How do you say <laughs> that? And what, what What are the characters for that? Because it's, again, a very unusual name. So anyway, the patriarch of the clan is uh, Masagoro Kiryuin. He's also known as Onimasa. And of course, that's played by the great Tatsuya Nakudai, which, uh, who we've talked about already several times. I think his working relationship with Gosha might have reached double figures. Um, I read something about maybe almost ten, or maybe slightly over ten movies together. He was around. He wanted to. He wa- He wanted to be around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and he was, you know, he was a major player. Well, he's still a major player in in a way, uh, with you know lots of great directors at the time. You know, of course, Kurosawa the, is is his main um, was his one of his main partnerships. Okay, so the patriarch of the clan is uh, Masagoro, who's also known as Onimasa. The matriarch is Uta, who's uh, played by the great uh, Shima Iwashita, who um, who you might remember played the wife character um, in uh, Sword of the Beast. She was the wife of the man who was uh, who was basically was it he was panning for gold, if, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. He was trying to do that for his uh, his yakuza clan to basically uh, get money for them. Anyway, back to Tatsuya Nakadai as Onimasa. He's a stern, violent, uh, sometimes likable and loyal man, uh, loyal to a fault, as we will probably talk about a little later. So he and his adopted daughter, uh, Matsue, who's played by uh, the late, who's played as an adult, excuse me, by the late uh, Masako Natsume, as uh, you mentioned, Ken. They're the main protagonists and the drivers of the plot. In fact, as I noted, it's the titular Hanako, who's played by Kaori Takasugi, who I've never seen in any other film. But uh, she's the background character, but uh, eventually becomes a key in the family's eventual downfall. Yeah, it, it's actually quite a neat setup for for a movie that spans uh, about 30 years, maybe 40. Because it's uh, just uh, post-World War One, and it leads up to uh, the brink of World War Two. But uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if they right. passed uh, World War Two. We start in 1918, we're definitely at 1938 at one point, but I don't know if the movie ends at that point. I think not. it's maybe like about, well... You know, the film first when the film first starts, you know, um, 
uh, Matsue becomes adopted, she must be probably around 11 at the time. I think by the time, I would say the film probably starts in the in like the 1910s, right, possibly. Right, right. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's why it needs its uh, running time uh, to support that. But uh, it is, exactly. uh, and it uh, was indeed based on a novel by Tomiko Miao. Uh, Toy asked Gosha to direct Onimasa, and the match was a good one beforehand. Uh, already, as Gosha reportedly greatly admired the writer, who was known to depict dysfunctional families in the Kochi region. And as the Midnight Eye piece uh, described, which I based my research on, that's why we've linked to it, because it's a great uh, two-part piece on Gosha. The, the piece described that uh, these families are trapped between growingly obsolete lifestyle and advancing uh, you know, modernity, you know, modern times, which we can see in Onimasa, definitely. Uh, the writer's father was actually a pimp. He sold young girls to brothels, and characters such as this uh, turn up in Onimasa, as we know. You know, all of this prompted Sorogosha to eject prior, you know, samurai dignity in characters. You know, this story wasn't really about dignity in characters and focused more on the love-hate relationship between men and women. This was uh, one of his uh, changes in um, cinematic depiction, if you will. Uh, initially, Gosha wanted the lead female role to be played by young actress Shinobu Otake. Uh, she turned down the role due to the erotic... Uh, content of the script you know and also our director's bad reputation was still hovering around uh, the industry whether that was rationally created or not he was arrested after all so there, there was you know you might you, you might not want to jump into that uh, jump into that project without uh, context and knowledge before but anyway gosha did not like this rejection and uh, but, but eventually he found act- actress uh, uh, masako natsume who was 25 at the time and known for the tv series monkey Monkey was a thing that really traveled the world, never reached us, but I yes. I, I always enjoyed it. That uh, that became like a cultural fixture in mm-hmm. uh, in 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 America, and I'm sure, and in, in the UK as well. I've heard people say, "Ah, I used to watch Monkey on TV." So uh, she was uh, in it uh, to uh, to an extent, if not the entire series. Then uh, then she was present in it, and uh, she also did uh, commercials uh, for uh, co- cosmetics. So. She, she was out there, but she wasn't established as a film actress. And unfortunately, she was actually very ill at the time of being cast in Onimasa, but she still pushed herself and worked even against her family's wishes. And um, sadly, she died three years later of something called Graves' disease. Um, yeah, so uh, she, she lived to see the release in her award, presumably, but um, uh, that was sadly it. Uh, the Midnight Eye piece uh, talks of Gosha's sensing, you know, pent-up anger in the actress, and uh, producer Katsuyoshi Okuyama w- w- was quoted later as saying that only Gosha could have done a film like Onimasa because his power of expression fried on the negative energy given to him by the antagonism of society. We've talked about that before, that that fueled even, you know, his early cinema. So uh, he, he, he was, um, his radar was on. To, to anger, like, where's anger? Where's anger? You, you're angry. Let's let's use that, <laughs> you know, in terms of his actors here. Um, so it was not uncommon for Gosha to mirror his own life in movies, uh, is the point. Eventually, Onimasa became a hit, earning over 2 million yen, and at- actress Masako Natsume was awarded the Blue Ribbon Award for Best Actress, which is not the actual Japanese Oscars, as we've talked about before, but it's a, it's a, big, it's a big award, obviously. And nonetheless, uh, but talking of Oscar, the Onimasa was submitted as Japan's entry for the 55th Academy Awards, but it was not accepted as a nominee. 
uh, that year uh, Spain's uh, to, be to Begin Again won. And uh, even Sweden had a nominee, uh, Flight of the Eagle by uh, director Jan Troell. And the following year, we uh, even won with uh, Fanny and Alexander. Ingmar Birmingham won an Oscar the following year. So. Oh, yeah. Right. Japan had a little bit of history with the Oscars just the years prior. You know, they've had, in total, they have won, maybe this is wrong to say, but they have one official win and a couple of what they call honorary awards. Um, in, in the 50s, uh, those honorary awards were given to uh, Kurosawa's uh, Rashomon. And also the first part in the Miyamoto Musashi trilogy starring Toshiro Mifune. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the actual you know, official Academy Award, the best foreign language film Academy Award, was given to Departures from 2008. So, um, you, know, you know, if you want to say they have two honorary ones and one Oscar, you're, 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 you're free to do so. But uh, the, the thing is, there were in a role leading up to Onimasa. They had two nominations in a row prior to Onimasa's uh, submission, uh, being uh, Muddy River and uh, Kagamusha. So the streak stopped with Gosha. You know, I want to bring him in. Like, nope, nope, not going there. You know, <laughs> that's the guy who had a gun. So we're not going there. Um, so, so yeah, maybe that honorary award was what they maybe called the best foreign language film award at the time. Because I, I remember reading on my Criterion discs of uh, of uh, Musashi Miyamoto that uh, this received the best Oscar. So may, maybe that's you know the equivalent, and maybe you can say therefore that Japan have free academy awards but they nevertheless they won so uh, the departures was that, was that um deserved winner of uh, such a prestigious uh, award in your opinion just in my opinion no i mean it's it's a fine melodrama i mean if you look at the breadth of japanese cinema throughout you know the decades and Departures, uh, sorry, is not really a blip. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, its its significance is basically because it won the award. I would say I, I don't think people are going to remember it very much in probably another decade or so. I mean, I guess people will remember again just because it won the Academy. I, d- I don't really think it was like excellent filmmaking or anything. Um, you know, it's it's good. It's a weepy film, you know, it. It makes you feel feel the feels, you know, so to speak, you know. But it's yeah, it's again considering the breadth of Japanese film, and no, <laughs> it shouldn't have won. Uh, never seen it. Don't really know too much about it, to be honest. But uh, there it is. Uh, some just minor production uh, background notes before we get to the review. Uh, legendary cinematographer Fujito Morita, who shot the likes of Daimajin, uh, multiple Sleepy Eyes of Death and Zatoichi movies. Uh, he also shot Hitokiri, handle the duties on, on Onimasa, uh, which happened after a chance encounter with Gorsh as he was looking for uh, director of photo- photography for the film and um, they reached a um, quick uh, agreement and a deal and Morito urged uh, Toei's producer to get the shoot started quickly since the movie required hot summer scenes and he wanted to catch that on camera during the actual uh, season. And uh, Morita talked of remembering actress uh, Masako Natsume fondly um, and he has said that she was the only actress to make him weep on the set while shooting her. And the working relationship with Gosha and his uh, DP was uh, more constant from this point. And the duo worked in total on 11 films together uh, throughout their respective careers. So so it's nice to have a sync with um, our cast and crew, you know. So why not turn to them again if they're not super busy? Yeah, and obviously I think, uh, you know, a lot of film crews in Japan, they rely on, you know, having, you know, the same 
people over and over again for consistency's sake also because you know obviously if you feel that you work together well then you know why not just keep making things together you know i think more so than um at that time you know this the studio system would sort of you know mix and match people a little bit more you know i think this was a time where you could be a little you could pick your crew and cast a little bit more so and uh, so we're at the review, and uh, let me do my quick opinion first. Uh, it's a somewhat slow first hour of the movie, and uh, acting as setup, uh, but that g- gives way to not what you expect from the back blurb that I t- told you. It's not a common Yakuza genre piece at all, as it turns out, but rather it's a restrained, sort of closed-off family drama. I say family in quotation marks. It's sort of they're not all blood, uh, family by blood. And uh, they're almost all of them are on this downward spiral, and uh, it it has that that classic aura of these are the good times and uh, these are the bad times, you know, the the rise and fall, as you said before. And in my mm. view, it's perhaps Gorsha's most tender and at points sad movie I, I've personally viewed anyway. And uh, it's rewarding and performed well, especially Tatsuya Nakadai, who manages to get the balance of being big and over the top and restrained right, because it's a performance that can go way way wrong if not handled well um because uh we we, we will talk of uh, the extravagant nature of this character i'm sure but uh make it two sittings maybe you know to sort of digest it uh that's what i did anyway uh but uh so that's my short opinion what do you think of uh, onimasa i think i basically share the same opinion um this was a, actually a rewatch but i had forgotten i mean about the film i had last time i watched it was maybe six or seven years ago I think when the maybe when the DVD first came out or sometime before that, but um, you know the thing that kind of struck me was that um, I do remember um, thinking, oh, Yakuza film, right? And then sitting down and watching it, I'm like, it's not really a Yakuza film, you know? I mean, especially if you contrast it against you know the two films that we watched in you know earlier in the episode, which was you know Violent Streets and Cash Calls Hell. Those are a little closer to that um, that Yakuza film. You know, and really, this is kind of more like closer to, I would say, almost like a soap opera in some ways. It's sort of closed off, uh, you know, away mm-hmm. from all of these. Like, uh, you know, there's no bells going off, like ding, Yakuza rope, ding, another one, right. ding, another one. So, yeah, and I mean, uh, is, is, is it rewarding after that sort of slow build up uh, for you? Uh, is it, uh, we, we, we're talking quick opinions here, but is it uh, one of those things like stick with it a little bit and then then there's going to be rewards at the end. Like you said, and as I even I mentioned during our chat yesterday, Ken, you know, I think the film, it does start off a little slowly, but it's not that it's not engaging. It's that you're really trying to figure out what kind of a film this is, you know, because I, I, I think when we say Yakuza film, we could be already come a little biased or maybe expectant of a particular type of film. Again, you know, where it's going to be violent and, you know, Oh, Tatsuya Nakadai in a Yakuza film. Oh, this has got to be the best. Cause you know, he can go really off over the top crazy. Right. And even the DVD says warning contains violence and nudity. So you sort of expect it to be like, grab the popcorn mm-hmm. shit on. Right, and, exactly. And, and the movie really doesn't, it's not like it pulls the wool over eyes. It's just that no, it, no. It, is, it isn't that kind of movie. And uh, it, it's, we'll mention this, but it's a movie that is not done developing its story by hour one. It gradually continues, which is why you got to stick with it and maybe split up the viewings, as I said. 
Uh, but you know what? Let, 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 let's put a cap on it uh, for for now in terms of quick opinion, and let's go through it a little bit from from the beginning. Uh, I had not seen the movie before, so I went in with zero anything. You know, I, I knew Nakadai was in it, so obviously that's uh, uh, enticing from the beginning. But it's it seems like he's painting a world where, or a novel did, that people are groomed to, you know, be picked by Yakuza clans or families. You know, um, because that's a prospect poor people and struggling people could lean on at this time uh, you know the couple and the family that sends off uh, two of their children to on you know on the onamasa family they they say that well this is the support we need as outsiders coming into this time this is the reputation we need for our business and you know livelihood is on the line and uh, that's rather sad you know you're being plucked out of you know your family comfort uh, to put into so to say comfortable surroundings uh, that that's all what he's um, establishing he, he is, it's not terrible terribly like uh, depressing but uh, it's certainly what happens and the movie sort of has an aura of fun also along the way because Tatsuo Nakira even his entrance you know is very um, Leone style uh, western entrance with his hat over his eyes and the score which I think is wonderful it's quite a varied score the score is almost like did they did they either steal or rip off Morricone? Because it sounds like Morricone. There's a harmonica, <laughs> harmonica, but it's playful and uh, uh, it's mm-hmm. it it's also puts me in a good mood because N- Nakadai is such an instant presence that uh, you you know you're in good hands. There's a professional there, and uh, you know it's a cool entrance, but the movie isn't showing its cards, especially not dramatically the, and all of that. So it, it, what I'm watching, I'm sure, is that there's broader context historically that I'm, that I'm not appreciating. But I think my, my point is that just follow the movie, he drops enough story exposition to place us in the story we're going to follow. So you don't need to read up on history to understand what uh, uh, the time and place we're in or anything, which is uh, it's sometimes a fear of mine in a way that I don't know enough about history to appreciate what's going on there but the point is you do you just gotta sit through uh, a slowly developing drama if you will so um uh, and, and a drama that's not intrusive either because uh i don't know if you noticed this but i, I actually quite dig that gosha is not often but especially in the beginning shooting dialogue scenes outside of rooms dialogue is happening mm-hmm. here he's not gonna be intrusive at all uh, and not be excessive at all mm-hmm. he's just gonna shoot dialogue and be a very matter of fact and straight and isn't that quite a change from having watched you know violent scope you know bloody bloody movies with tilted angles and shit like that like it's a uh, it's restrained isn't it what do you think well, i think it's obviously the credit to the um to the writer you know uh tomiko miao who, who um you know if we can go back a little bit um you know one thing i guess we can add to um this film is that you know as I mentioned with, you know, violent streets, there was this, there was this trend in uh, Yakuza film to sort of portray what is, what was, you know, authentic about the Yakuza. And really, you know, because of the era and because of, you know, wanting to get the audience into seats, you know, what became authentic for Yakuza film at that point, I think became more comical, you know, to the effect of, you know, as we mentioned in uh, Violent Streets, there's one character who's a transvestite assassin who, you know, wants to see blood, you know, that kind of thing, where it becomes almost like, as you said, over the top. And wh- what's interesting about, uh, you know, Onimasa is that it kind of regrounds 
you know, Yakuza cinema in a, in a, in a way, you know, and I think this is, I don't want to say a trend at the point, at this point of, I think this was sort of a trend in all cinema was to kind of soften things a little bit and to make it more accessible, especially to, I would say a female audience. Um, I think, I think by this time, by the late seventies and early eighties, I think that the commercial world understood that, you know, the Japanese world is kind of male centric, you know, it's just like a lot of other countries you know, there's this sort of, you know, macho-ness to the man and, you know, I'm in, I'm in control, I'm in power and all that. But in reality, you know, a lot of men at that time were handing over their paychecks to their wives who, who were the ones who handled, you know, the household, you know, finances and whatnot. And, you know, the big joke that you see ha- uh, occur in a lot of films and, um, and uh, manga and whatnot in this era is that, you know, you have this Japanese salary man who basically gets an allowance every week in which he can use to spend, you know, to get his lunch, to go out drinking with his buddies after work, while it's the woman who's really in control of, you know, the finances. And I think possibly even to this day, that's still, you know, something that's a part of the tradition in the family. But because of that, I think a lot of these commercial, uh, a lot of these commercial ventures, uh, you know, companies and whatnot, saw that women were the ones who actually had the money. Therefore, they had the more commercial value to them. If you go to Japan now, a lot of commercials and whatnot are really focused toward women. They're focused toward appealing women. They're a little more. They're a little, I don't want to say softer so much, so to speak, but they, they are definitely focused toward, you know, attracting women because they know that women have spare time and more spare money to spend, whereas the men, you know, are more focused on work and career and whatnot and don't necessarily have that time nor that money to spend. And I think that became that and, you know, the onset of, you know, the television, the trend, I don't want to say the trend of television, but the boom in the television era of, you know, in Japan, the 70s and 80s, I think all those things kind of came together and sort of made filmmakers realize that, you know, we have to make films that appeal to this audience that has the money. And it certainly feeds into this one. Like, I, 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 like, I like the term regrounded and the, mm-hmm. And also the way that you talking about the you know this, this change in society a little bit in terms of men and women, you you can see that w- one character that's going to be left out in this movie is Nakai's character. He's maybe not clinging on to old ways, but the the world is uh, you know moving faster than he is, um, and all of all of that. So so it is evident that his uh, sort of like gotta love power, man. Like power is sweet. You know, he really enjoys that. That that that's not not gonna last. That's certainly not gonna last. Right, and of course, n- neither of us has has uh, access to the book. Well, technically, I could have access, but you know, I don't, I don't I know. I didn't bother. That's what I did because I'm metal that way. <laughs> but it is kind of a, I guess, for what we know of the book, you know, the the book focuses more on that Harako character, mm. but the film focuses more on the on Nakadai's character or, or Onimasa, I should say. And I guess that is sort of the interesting, I don't know if you say message or theme of the film is that, you know, you know, is, is, is Gosha in fact saying that, you know, it's sort of like a message to men in general, you know, like, Hey, the world's changing, you know, it's time for you to realize that, you know, or maybe that was a message to himself possibly. 
regardless how the audience saw the film, they responded, you know, with their wallets anyway. Uh, so, uh, but it, it's interesting, like, because the the way these kids, uh, which is the, the two kids initially, and, um, you know, uh, sister and brother, presumably, and the brother runs away. And, and I don't, did, did he ever pop up again? I don't think he ever did. No. Uh, no. But, but so, so you think that, okay, that this clan or this Yakuza family, they've done this before. So they're about to, or are they about to squash innocence and individuality by plucking these kids even out of bad conditions and then just sort of grooming them to their own image and to for their own selfish purposes i mean it looks that way it feels that way and uh you got these kids that they're like rookies in an army unit almost they're they're, pl- mm-hmm. they're they're put into this uh the barracks almost and they're asked to you know this is what you gotta do these are your tasks and all of that well you know what what one thing that i was thinking while i was watching the film was you know in in the clan Onimasa has a few uh, mistresses, and I was sort of wondering if they were also at one time adopted, you know, in air quotes, you know, by the family to become mistresses. Yeah. You know, it's there's no real reference to that or not, but I was just sort of wondering. And the fact that there, of course, there is one scene where, you know, very scary scene, which is like a bit, essentially a near rape scene of um, of uh, Matsue by um, Onimasa, yeah. you know, where he says, like, I own you, I own you, you know, that kind of thing where it's it's no longer, you know, a familiar relationship. It's more of a financial or, you know, business relationship. And you just sort of wonder if, you know, those again, those mistresses were possibly, you know, also, you know, adopted at some point. Which is great that you wonder, even if the movie doesn't explicitly answer it, but it, right. it crafts and creates curiosity, which is what I think Gorsha is doing almost all throughout, really, until well, well until we know almost the all extent of the movie, then we'll know this is the story, an like hour and a half in or two hours in, okay, now now it's established but the curiosity for me was always there like there's no lulls uh, even if the first hour is slow it doesn't mean it's boring and lacking in content because he is moving forward even at his own speed and all of that and um there are conflicts but they're not plentiful at all i mean there, there are a couple of them but mainly it's about the family i mean the initial one that doesn't drive the film is the conflict that happens over the the dog fights, right? Which is not a scene I'm keen to look at again, to be honest. I'm a dog guy, and uh, I mean, in certain encounters, this scene wouldn't fly by censors uh, unscathed, I think, because it's a pretty nasty-looking uh, dog fight. Gosha is known to be raw and gritty, and this is the world, this is the real world, deal with it, bitches. But it, it, it's a tough scene to see these dogs, like, at their throats and just, you know, pinning each other down, pinning each other down, so... I was actually kind of surprised that I wonder if there were any like, um, you know, if there were any laws back at that time, you know, it, it really surprised me that he could film that particular scene, you know, even Japan, whatnot, you know, it's not, it's not the U S or it's not Sweden. You know, we, we obviously know our laws toward the, the treatment of animals in, um, you know, on film sets, but, uh, I don't know, maybe they got, they got past, you know, censors or whatnot by saying, Hey, Dog fighting happens, you know. This is a real thing, you know. It's, it's I, I don't, I don't think it happens any longer. Or if it does happen, it's a very sm- small underground type of thing, you know. But at that time, that was, you know, a major sport. Yeah, and it, it's a tough watch because it it goes on and on, and I, I don't know. It looks like one of the dogs I was sedated or, you know, God forbid, killed for the movie. At um, 
mm-hmm. the story dictates that one of the dogs were and that's how one of the, the now i'm laughing because you, you think that okay now it is turning into a yakuza movie because they did that to our dog let's go get him and, right, right, and exactly. that is super funny to a, to a degree because especially coming from nakedai because they they're gonna follow their rivals across the sea or across the water to another area and at one point mm-hmm. he's singing a song nakedai singing a song about sailing we're going to the going to the sea and it's it's gonna it's like be a field trip for him exactly it's super fun this uh but you also realize that i think someone is living a de- delusion here even in the midst of violence, he doesn't seem that bothered by it. That oh my god, like <laughs> it's this world is bloody. I didn't expect that. It's so that's funny. Nakeda is actually very very funny, but mm-hmm. it's it speaks to the character as the movie goes on. You know, realize that the world is running faster than he is. Uh, you know, he's mainly you know pacing in circles, if you will, to to use a co- common analogy. Right. Well, I, I think that's, you know, definitely the thing that's interesting about uh, Nakadai's character is that, you know, he, he's a man not in the in the same time. At the same time, too, he um, he he wants to be, you know, he wants to progress or he wants to mature or he wants to become something greater than what he is, because, you know, when he has to uh, confront uh, the um, his boss or his father, I guess you could call his godfather. Um, I forget his name. Uh, Suda, I think it was his name. You know, where he he gets in trouble because um, he's sent to sort of rough up um, these uh, leaders of this uh, of this uh, transportation strike that are, that's happening in the area. So he's trying to get them to basically get back to work, and then he kind of screws things up by sort of falling in with them. Let's give a little actor shout out. One of the few actors I recognize uh, playing uh, Suda, uh, the big boss, uh, Tetsuro Tamba. Yeah, right. Tetsuro Tamba, right. So yeah. It's very fun. Like, hey, that guy just saw you only live twice for the first time. So, hey. Well, believe, believe me, if you watch enough Japanese film, you see him in everything, it feels like. <laughs> like, like. Like, even a few uh, months ago, I rewatched Port Arthur because I'm a fan of these war movies. I was like, oh, yeah, right. Nakedai was in it, and Tetsuro Tamba, and probably 50 <laughs> yeah. other famous Japanese actors, including Mifune playing the Emperor in that right. one. But, yeah. And actually, uh, you might have noticed that um, our buddy uh, Isao Natsuyagi was in the film, too. Um, you might remember we talked about him during, uh, was it Samurai Wolf? Right, I did miss that, but that face is uh, is distinct, yeah. of course. But, uh, but there, because the thing is, when you watch the anime go DVD, that actually translates the cast credits as well. Uh, I think they list about fifty actors before the credits credits are done, and <laughs> right. and, and, and and that's from the Japanese print. So because uh, they just list big and small actors, uh, uh, proudly so. Let me ask you: Do you think uh, like Gosha's pace is right here? Like, so gradually develop Nakadai, gradually develop what Matsue wants to do. As because she sort of refuses to uh, stay put, she wants to educate herself and uh, essentially go outside. You know, not be contained within the family walls. Uh, do you think all that uh, pace to it all, you know, is interesting and logical for the movie, or do you think it lull, has lulls that are problematic? I didn't have a problem with the pacing. The I think the thing that I had a problem with that uh, possibly. Yeah, that various movements of the film were not as pronounced as I, I would think I'd want them to be. And maybe that's because I'm coming from more of a Western mindset, you know. You know, for example, um, you know, as Matsue grows up, you know, we see her, you know, she's a school teacher and whatnot. I, I still had some problems uh, with her relationship within the family because obviously I, I think we sort of get to the point that – she accepts the clan as her family 
you know, through the good and bad times and whatnot. Um, and she's loyal to um, Onimasa. But at some point, you kind of wonder why. Yeah, yeah, because she has an aura of individuality in her. It's not like yeah, her desire to educate herself is bo- herself is born late or right. anything. It seems like she is a proactive and a strong girl, even even before com- becoming a woman. Where and then that's where the actress uh, change, obviously. And I, I think that really plays out in the one scene where you know we haven't talked about this yet, really. But I'm sort of fast forwarding a little bit. By, uh, you know, her husband ends up getting killed, and essentially he ends up getting killed indirectly because of the actions of the of Kiryuin family, and of course that reflects on you know Onimasa himself, and then she goes to collect his um, his ashes because he's been cremated. So in in doing so, you know, the family of the husband, you know, they they are staunchly resistant to it, and they say, you know, go away, you know. You're not in this family, so you know, don't bother coming around that kind of thing. And she sort of fights them back and ends up getting uh, her husband's ashes anyway. And then you know, she does a she does a famous line. Then it was it was kind of it was kind of funny because I was watching this in a different room where my wife was sitting, but she, my wife happened to hear the line. It's uh, was it nametara ikanze desho. And um, I was asking my wife right now, but uh, which basically, which they translate, uh, which uh, Animego translated as, you know, don't fuck with me, which which is actually a really good translation. It basically means like, don't mess with me, that kind of thing. Yeah, I heard that one where, where she became sort of popular and known for that line, which doesn't sound right. like in English anyway. Like, well, big whoop, like you, you wrote an F word, but, uh, you know, it, it's about context and her presence and... Uh, it's a very tough line, tough meaning, you know, it sounds like a tough person would say it. Um, it's not, it's not a popular line anymore. It's, it's very old slang now, by now, but anyway, so, um, but I think that's the one point where you do see that, you know, she has this, not only this loyalty to the family, but that it's, you almost feel like the Yakuza blood is in her at that point, you know, um, which is again, very interesting. You know, it, it definitely lends some dimension uh, to, um, her character but at certain points i did kind of feel like well how come she isn't more resisting you know even when she's first adopted you know like um you know the we learn that her you know her younger brother runs away from the family you know why didn't she also too you know i mean of course the the film would end at that point yeah for know, sure I, I wonder. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i i didn't see that as cracks so to say in the um depiction but because i having lived such a full life within those walls i'm sure that there there would always be echoes of that even though she is very proactive and the husband that she uh, the man she meets that becomes her husband he's a political activist i think we see that he actually is a communist yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, so we we see like her like first smile in eons probably is when being outside and being uh, working for a cause that she believes in so there is that she's drawn more to that than that i think that's where the uh, our uh, our actors really shines the most she's the most radiant in those sections where she's happy she's great throughout the movie and like but but that's what the images that stuck with me that uh, someone that's outside literally and doing something she believes in and uh, standing by her man as well and uh, i guess i should mention that um you know again this is coming from a western perspective you know i i think because 
to a degree, you know, Western individualism is a little, the concept is a little different uh, than, you know, Japanese, especially of that time, 1930s or whatnot, because obviously, you know, filial piety was still, you know, a concept that was, uh, you know, central to, you know, to the thinking of people um, at that time, you know, and now to a degree to probably not as great as then, you know, so I guess, you know, maybe I should backtrack and say that, you know, Saying that as a criticism maybe is not was probably not the proper way of of mentioning it as as being more of something that seems a little foreign to you know Western eyes as you know why would she stick with the family when you know, they're obviously mistreating her that kind of thing well it's because there's a concept of you know respecting your elders you know whether they're your blood or not you know and and eventually they do become blood as you know as evidenced by her her actions when she tries to. Um, you know, gather her husband's uh, ashes. So. so, so she is an integral character, the very skilled and home performers for a young actress. You know, she would have evolved that, I'm sure, had she not passed away. But, uh, you know, it's hard not to attach to what Nakedai is doing, but certainly what the character is doing, because he is, he is delusional, I think, to, to a degree, which is something Gosha really writes well and... Uh, works with Nakedai well to convey that you know there's a key scene where he starts talking in these ways that make sense to him but sounds weird to anyone else because he is asked as you said to deal with labor movement activists and uh, so he, he has no sympathy for that movement he says I I'm a self-made man I never had to rely on anyone so that mm-hmm. that so he has no sympathy for what they're doing so he, that, that's his sort of independent having been cut off from the, the society as it's evolving uh, it's just his sort of view on things that well what you're doing uh not good enough you're not self-made uh like i am so but but he his armor can be easily can easily be uh dented because he has he uh he's called someone's pet dog you know you answer to someone so you're no better than a dog and that that gets him part of that i think Gosha makes very funny because uh, after he's heard that, he essentially goes home home and said, we're now going to be chivalrous men. So let's not do the prostitution racket anymore. Let's help out. And it's it's a classic character that just changes his mind, you know, like that. And it's way too late to do that because it's it's so insincere. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's insincere. I think it's more like. Well, initially, I think it is because it happened so quick. But I think over the years, right. maybe, uh, may, maybe his. Um, we see that at the end of the film. We won't spoil it, but he is in touch with his emotions once he looks back on his life. So he's not a completely cold character. But when he comes home, it's essentially I've got a new idea. <laughs> let's let's help out now. They're like, what about the prostitution racket? Well, not anymore. I, I think at that point. Uh, you know, Onimasa, you know, he's, he's a man, he's kind of grasping for things, you know, yes. he's, he's grasping, he's grasping for relevance and he's grasping to be mo- a more modern person. And I think that he sees that this group is sort of his way to do that. You know, what happens is that, you know, again, he has to answer to his boss, you know, again, by, uh, played by Tetsuro Tamba. And, you know, he kind of goes back to his, his old way of, you know, yes, boss, you know, and, you know, that kind of thing at, at, at a particular point. And, you know, like we said, uh, like you, we sort of established, he's kind of a man who's sort of torn between two different worlds and he, he doesn't know exactly, you know, what the direction is to go, you know, even to the very end of the film. 
really, you know, and the very end of the film is really a picture of how out of touch he's been with the world. Let me ask you, uh, it, it's going to sound very uh, basic, possibly uneducated, but it's, it's. Uh, I, I struggle to formulate the question mainly because sometimes English doesn't come easy to me. So everybody possibly knows this, but I'm going to ask anyway. The household and the the clothes that Onimasa and his family wear are still very uh, period Japan. You know, they, they're not wearing uh, modern clothes and they're not surrounded by modern modern things like cars and what have you. Uh, w- would that be common in 1918 or even 1938 for, for whatever family to still have that again part of your wardrobe part of your living conditions uh, to to not switch to uh, so to say modern house or having modern equipment around you know what i mean like or is that as a matter of fact speaking to the character of onimasa that uh, he's uh, he's keeping these surroundings around him well i think that you know japan is always um i think from gosh I don't even know, maybe the the turn of the century, I mean, of course, the 20th century. You know, we could see Japan, there's, it's always been this nation of, um, you know, duality to a certain degree, you know, the tradition versus the modern, that kind of thing. I, I think that's why Japanese film, for the most part, is, is fascinating to people because it does deal with those kinds of themes. You know, even, I would say even today, you know, it's not, completely out of the ordinary to see a traditional Japanese home in, you know, especially if you go out to the countrysides, you know, even if you went outside, let's say 50 or so miles outside of, um, outside of, uh, Tokyo itself, you know, which is, you know, supposed to be the sort of the Mecca for, you know, modernity in, uh, in Japan, it wouldn't be strange to see it, you know, an old style house like that with, you know, tatami screens and, you know, whatnot. Not a uh, big ass rickshaw stuff. <laughs> like a best no, yeah, that's definitely, yeah, that's definitely, I think you'd only see that possibly yeah, in, in, in touristy areas. You know? I mean, you do still see them, but. It, yeah. It's kind of slight, somewhat funny image because it's always there, it's always tended to, and then at the end of the movie, it's, um, you know, the whole thing is in tatters, including um, the rickshaw, so. So yeah, the the but as far as the traditional clothing goes, you know, uh, you know, kimono and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you can if you go out to the country areas, yeah, you'll still see people wear. You know, even in Tokyo, you see people walking around, and you know, you have, there's people with you know t-shirts and jeans and suits. You know, kimono. You can see all kinds of different clothes at you know all all different parts of the day in all different areas of, you know, even the most, you know, modern of um, cities, you know, modernized, excuse me, cities of uh, Japan. So, you know, it's, I didn't see it as very unusual, although, you know, obviously there are some things that kind of set the period um, with the the type of designs that uh, of the kimono and whatnot, you know, they're not, they weren't like more modern designs or anything like that. So I could, that's what sort of place the film for me was, you know, the mix of certain kinds of um, designs, uh, you know, and not in, in addition to, you know, of course, other uh, time markers in the film, such as, you know, the, the rail strike and the fact that obviously, you know, World War II hasn't happened at that point. Uh, you know. uh, let me ask you, how do you think Gosha works with uh, Nakedai? And do you think he keeps the balance in check in terms of not going too over the top and also also dealing with some more understated nature of his character. Do, do you think them two get the balance right in terms of this character? Because it needs to be right. Otherwise, you can get lost in terms of like, oh, well, he's too loud. He's too over the top. And therefore, I don't buy his dramatic turnaround later. So so how do you think that balance works? Yeah, I, I think they did a 
they both did a really great job. I, I would say I would really want to give Nakadai more of the credit because yeah, I mean, obviously he's, he's the actor, so he, he would have to sort of know how to control himself. But, you know, Nakadai is very, very I, I've seen many uh, or listened to many interviews with him and and, you know, it's very intelligent, very much understands, you know, how to approach a role. Does he like talking about his craft, therefore? Is he one of those guys that have no problem like sharing technique and craft? Yeah, I, I would say he doesn't do it in a manner that you can't understand, though, because, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, you know, in interviews, you, I think you have an idea of who your audience is. So I'm sure, you know, he has to sort of, you know, make it a little easier for the, for the layman, so to speak, to to be able to understand what he's talking about. But I, I think his, his, his approach to acting and, you know, he wasn't really groomed to be an actor, so to speak, you know, cause he was, he was a person who was just kind of scouted. He, I, if I remember correctly, he, was, he worked at like a department store or something. And then, you know, someone just saw found him and said, you know, Hey, you'd look, you'd look great in film. The greeter, <laughs> let's get him into the studio. Like the guy who grew, grew yeah, right. the, the, door, the Walmart greeter. Yeah, right? exactly. yeah. Because he's getting better throughout the movies I've seen him. Whoa, he's good in that movie. He's good in that movie. And now I'm seeing like the culmination of, you know, he he's funny and he's mm-hmm. big. Those eyes when they go big and that reveals a character that's mm-hmm. also loving it. You know, you know. remember the scene where he's uh, he has the young Matsue and uh, one of the, the wife or one of the mistresses. He has this little game with them like whoever lied slap her you know because he's trying to find out who who lied about and he's watching that like oh god i can totes get them to slap each other awesome like, <laughs> and, and that could could have been so much worse if not handled correctly because second hour contains nothing of that it contains expressed regrets and all of that so you have to get those two polar opposites so damn correct otherwise the film might crash and burn you know yeah no i mean that that's i mean that's a big reason why nakada is one of my favorite uh actors um you know japanese cinema or whatever cinema you know it's he just has really good instincts and control over you know any particular character in the film you know i mean he's at sometimes sensitive at sometimes funny at sometimes romantic at sometimes you know angry violent you know he can just do basically almost anything. I've seen him in a couple of some of his earlier films. Um, he's a little weak in sometimes, but you know, he just chalked it up to you know he's learning his craft still, so mm-hmm. you know no big deal. Or or he's just sort of generic, you know. Sometimes in a few of his roles too. I mean, his presence is always felt felt in a film, you know. You know, regardless of his performance, because you know he's he's got very you know telltale features you know um the first time i saw nakadai i thought he was maybe half japanese to be honest because you know he doesn't you know he doesn't look like a so-called typical japanese person yeah he's got sort of you know his features a little different than than i would say a typical japanese person i thought maybe he's he's half or something and i find out he's not and i think that's sort of what makes him distinctive is that his features are very um unique to him you know, like you mentioned, his eyes and whatnot, not to mention, you know, his, his long cheeks. You know, he's got whoever scouted him is a genius. That's all I got to say. And probably the one who scouted him didn't make the bulk of uh, the money uh, on uh, out of his career. You know, it was probably not his manager from day one till... Uh... No, I think it was a director who scouted him. I remember reading a little tidbit yesterday, just clicking around the internet that... Uh, you know, he certainly worked with Kurosawa and took over from uh, bad boy Shintaro Katsu. 
in uh, was it uh, Kagemushan? Uh, I read that he he's somewhere apparently in Seven Samurai, but either an uncredited part or a very small part. So he he worked with Kurosawa at least a little bit early on. Yeah, I think he was just an extra in right. uh, Seven Samurai. So um, so look, look at that development, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, well, while you do that, I want to talk a little bit about melodrama because I I did think the movie was rather sad and the, the Gosha plays it big at certain points. I I, I won't spoil as such, but there, there there's a scene where a plot line where a character gets uh, sick, you know, gets a terminal uh, illness that I've forgotten now. And yeah, typhus, typhus. That's mm-hmm. right. And, and the death scene is big, but it it's played well enough, and that there's some expressed regrets that, that are heartfelt. But I enjoyed more. The low-key, very matter-of-fact melodrama, uh, another deathbed scene, again, I won't spoil it, where a character simply sits there and um, says, not in a hoo-hoo-hoo manner, but rather, I'm so sad I didn't get to tell you what happened today and what was on my mind. Mm -hmm. And now I can't do that. And... I gotta tell you, those things work better for me. Uh, he's he's smart enough to not be this uh, manipulative filmmaker. Score sometimes is thick on violins and stuff, but I think overall drama is very well played. And there, there's certainly some scenes with Nakedai where it, it's not expressing regrets in death in the same way, but there's some expressions of regret in life. Those are some of the biggest scenes. While I don't prefer those versus the more restrained ones, I think overall, Gosha does okay with it, and that's why I think it is one of his more tender and more sad movies, because it's never it's never been really fun, this cycle of this family leading up to their fall. It's never really been fun, and the cycle of violence continues a little bit, later on in this um, in this movie and and that's no fun you know it, it, it's not violent streets fun anymore the cycle of violence is really sad and it, it's unfortunately bringing with it with it uh more victims that it should as uh, you alluded to earlier um uh, but uh, it, it's nice to see i mean we, we've not watched each and every of gosha's movies and therefore tracked each and every possible development for the better i'm sure there's a clunker or two in there you know but it's nice to see you know new decade skills that is built upon and a new way of making movies that the decade might have dictated that you you probably should make movies this way uh, this way a bit more grounded and it's just nice to see him respond not in an angry way anymore and not in this like pretty ugly Mm." but rather you know, with um, there's more of a beating heart than in any of the movies I've seen before, and he he uh, executes that quite well without being too sappy or saccharine and things like that. Again, not all dramatic scenes play according to how I like drama to be played, but they're they're certainly not uh, lacking in skills, even when there's crying and stuff like that. So those honest emotional scenes towards the back end of the film, I think, are quite captivating especially for Nakedai now now and more older character and they they simply gray him up which is great you do, Nakedai doesn't need to have a lot of prosthetics for us to believe that he's now 30 years old or whatever they they treat it very matter of fact well you get gray hair when you're old that's good enough right I'm a good enough actor to sell that <laughs> you know so let's just go with that so 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 again the spectrum and the range that that he goes through and and, and Gosha in his entire career, I suppose, uh, the spectrum and the range of how he depicts drama. There's a new um, snapshot of it in this movie that I 
that I quite enjoy. So so tender and sad is um, what I spontaneously got out of it. So yeah, drama wise for you, uh, effective or not, uh, depending on the scene or because some scenes are bigger uh, melodramatically. Yeah, for the most part, I think the drama works a lot. Um, you know, you mentioned um, the uh, the the scene where uh, one of the characters is dying from a uh, typhus, and uh, that's really one of the standout scenes in the entire film. It's um, it's haunting. You know, another thing actually that I wanted to mention, uh, besides uh, you know just the 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 drama of the film, is that uh, you know I think not only is the the film sort of you know giving us idea of you know a person who's kind of stuck between. Um, you know, two different worlds. You know, one thing I was thinking about that I noted that uh, the film touches on, and I would assume the book does to a degree too, it, it really kind of touches on the importance of education. You know, in the end, you know, we sort of understand um, Onimasa as being a character who wants to be, you know, modern or who wants to be his own man, but he doesn't know how to do it. And the reason why he doesn't know how to do it is because, in essence, he's not educated. You know, we you talked about the one scene where he um he sort of um gives into the uh the uh i think his name's takeda who's the the character who who's who knows basically the leader of the uh railroad strikes and that he sort of gives into his sort of um I guess you could call it propaganda, the communist propaganda. And he kind of realizes, you know, Onimasa comes back and says, you know, yeah, we got to help the people, that kind of thing. It's because he, he's he's attracted to, I think, education or he's attracted to being educated or he has this understanding that, you know, um, that education can lead to something great, but he doesn't know how to do it. So he's sort of just, he's just grasping for straws and, and you know, the you know, it just so happens that this, you know, Takeda character is, is the one who can, who has a clear thought that he can latch onto, that he can follow and that he can possibly be an important figure in, which is, I think is why at one time, and it does seem like, oh, he just turned so suddenly, you know, why does he do that? But it's, again, he's just looking for a way to become his own man, which is kind of funny because in earlier scene, in an earlier scene, or is it a later scene? No, it is an earlier scene where Matsue says, you know, hey, I passed this exam. I can go on to, you know, high school. Was women, this girl's high school is willing to accept me. And he says, he says, no way. He says, you know, women, women, you know, back at the time, women generally were not educated outside of, I think, um, of uh, middle school, you know, or junior high school. Again, a man out of time. He doesn't, you know. He, I think, he understands the significance of education because, because he later then, you know, when he receives correspondences from people, you know, Matsue is the first one who has to to read these things. Because why? She's the only one who can read in the family. That's why. But then again, he doesn't understand the way to achieve what he wants to achieve, and that, of course, and then in, in the film we realize that in reality it's just way too late. And and you know what, the way you talk about it makes, I hope your listeners understand that it's very easy to attach to this character journey. It's not too complex, it's not too unsaid or unmentioned. These developments without being expository are at the forefront. And if you if you dig performances, certainly that's, you know, watching actors act. Um, while this is not show-offy, that that is still there. Performances is there for you to latch on to. Uh, 
hopefully an engaging character arc yeah because he's never he's never unlikable as such even when he's acting like the big boss mm-hmm, right it, you just sort of feel like oh like you're not gonna you're not gonna scare anyone by tipping your hat and doing crap like that because he doesn't seem very like a very violent mob well boss. yeah in, in fact if anything he seems you know more pitiable because he just represents his old way of doing things yeah. you know that you know probably doesn't fit anymore and, he, and he's stuck in this world because you know he has no way to get out he's not he doesn't you know at one point you know when again when he sort of when he wants to transform the clan into kind of this sort of you know group that wants to help people you know he says he says to his people he says you know most important thing is your brain you know you gotta use your head that kind of thing and really you know that's just sort of talk right yep. it's just it's just emptiness you know it's it's, it's nothing it's because how can you use your head if you don't have an educational foundation, you know, in order to use it to begin with, right? You know, you know what I mean? Well, when I say it, it is a bit of a revelation to see Gorsha do character drama this well. Not that I didn't think he had it in him. There were certainly bits in Hitokiri, but that spoke to that genre, you know, uh, Chambara genre and deconstructing that but it's just nice to see that uh it's he's progressing rather than growing old and devolving uh which, which is super nice and i mean without knowing the entirety of the 1982 output in japan but just spontaneously do you think this was oscar worthy at least a nod or, or, or is it uh, like one of many 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 japanese movies that were this good so it's not that unique the 80s are kind of a strange time for Japanese film, mainly because there was a lot of crap. This was the era there was just a lot of stuff that was not that good and not worth mentioning. And The era of uh, the cinema, or at least uh, things on video, maybe before the V cinema meaning came into play, but uh, we, we certainly got to that too. <laughs> I think that came into play like, yeah, about about around this time and, you know, where film was seen as, well, film is always a commodity no matter what, but I think it was even more so, of course, you know, it's a, it's a commercial product at this point, you know, rather than less seen as an, you know, individual expression, et cetera, that kind of thing. But anyway, so I think would it have deserved, you know, again, I haven't seen every film in this, in this year, obviously, and you know, it certainly wasn't a big winner at Japan's own awards show because it, it got a lot of big nominations, but it didn't win. Uh, it got Best Art Direction but and um, her, her Actors Award at a separate thing. Yeah, I think this was the year that uh, Ballad of Narayama won. And is it a bit better film than Ballad of Narayama? That's uh, oh, not even the best version of Ballad of Narayama either. So should it have beat Ballad of Narayama? I would say, you know what? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll never know because it never never happened that way. It never went down that way. So you had to wait till departures and that wasn't pleasing either. So right. John John loses either way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's kinda like that. Yeah. I mean Hmm. That's it's really difficult, you know, because it's it's two different directors. Subject matter is somewhat similar, actually, you know, because Ballad of Narayama is sort of also about, you know, the impingement of, you know, the modern world on, you know, old and traditional ways. Well, at least we got a quality movie out of it. And and, uh, my my final note is uh, I've mentioned that the movie movie, um, and its characters are very closed off. We we don't see a lot of interaction with the world as such. Uh, You know, it seems Mm -hmm. like 
it's their house. It's a big ass house. You know, it seems like it's an intricate maze, but it, they're still closed off other than Matsu's uh, attempt at educating herself and all of that. It, it becomes a theatrical piece slash it just makes sense because of what we know of the character development up until the end without spoiling what happens. It just makes sense that this house isn't uh, epic and grand and luxurious, uh, like living in luxury, but rather it's um, it's restricting and has restricted at least he uh, Onimasa from um, uh, moving as moving with the world, you know. So uh, and and then when you see it all in shambles, then that that's uh, that's that, you know. That, that it, it was kind of nothing. Now it's definitely nothing. Yeah, essentially, it's the it's it's a symbol of the clan itself, right? It's you know, at first, it's this large, you know, imposing place, you know, as especially as Matsue joins them, you know, everything looks, everything seems big, you know, big and luxurious, and then you know, as time goes on, you know, it just falls to ruins, essentially, you know. There's that one scene where, um, you know, they bring in. I, I think it was a. Uh, a statue of Buddha, which is, I, I assume, supposed to be somewhat of a, a a tribute, or you know, I guess some could say possibly, you know, a gravestone in some in some ways to the family, because it's obvious that, you know, the family bloodline will, won't continue. It's sort of, it's sort of, you know, before the family's even dead, it, you could see it as being a dedication to them, I guess, in 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 a way, you know, and you know, as they will in the into the house at, at one point actually i kind of thought you know the house was in such disarray i was looking i was like are they in a whole different building now or something is this the same house you know i mean that's you know and really it's the symbol of their their fall you know and there's certainly the technical award for art direction uh, seems uh, deserved anyway because it uh, it all plays into the story rather than being a showcase of look at what we did look at what we built and put onto the walls and stuff so uh, certainly Worthy. That's the end of my notes. I I, I do recommend it, um, especially if you're interested in Gorsha, whether you start here or with Free Outlaw Samurai. But it, it's it's certainly nice to watch a couple of movies leading up to this if you're interested in the journey of a director and his or her skill. Then it's certainly nice to see what Onimasa brings to the table, and I'm curious to see uh, what sort of the rest of the career uh, held if this is the high watermark or if the was uh, better things to come. But uh, I'll see personally as we conclude the series and all of that. Um, uh, any other notes, my friend, from beginning, middle, or end of movie? No, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. A little, uh, not as raw and gritty as uh, and uh, bloody as uh, we used to, and uh, but uh, uh, switch into the dramatic that uh, I probably knew was there, but I was I'm glad that it was as honed as it uh, as it was coming both from Gorsha and certainly from his uh, his veteran uh, lead actor too, and uh, the, the newcomer, so uh, certainly. Well, you know, in the episode, you know, I'm thinking that we might even veer even more into the drama, so be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did a movie after this called The Geisha, I believe. I don't know if that's uh, considered anything. That, that's actually, that, that's also a, a, a book that was written by uh, Miao. And I, and, and I think it's the movie after this in his filmography, because the trailer stated that, um, I think anyway, one of the trailers on the DVD stated something about this comes after this and this, you know, uh, Gosha returns after this movie. If I remember correctly, he adapted three of her books, uh, one of which, was, of course, was uh, Onimasa, but the second was um, 
the or yeah which i think criterion has and then the third was um was uh the geisha which i think um i think that uh animego also put out didn't they not too sure they have a couple of uh, geisha titles um before this and certainly this i'll, I'll have to yeah. look into that but uh yep certainly well it's something to look into but uh, as for availability of onimasa for those in need of english subtitles the u.s release dvd by animego is still available at a at a reasonable price even though it's a it's um you know a, not a dvd that's printed anymore is some of the Animego titles, especially anime titles from Animego, they are, the prices are jacked so to a ludicrous level. There, there, there's not a lot of uh, people trying to grasp Onimasa, I suppose, so therefore they, they price it at like a below $20 uh, level, which is all fair. Uh, print looks uh, perfectly fine for standard definition, and uh, Animego's usually a high level of subtitling is uh, present. You got some extras, um, liner notes explaining further, further what the content in the movie historically is about it's it's a tradition animego has kept since laser discs they always had a like um a, a physical set of liner notes even with yeah. basic violent anime titles right they they always printed something for context whether it's uh, lyrics or things to to set historical context like heck even the lone wolf and cub set there's a big bunch of text about you know historically where we are at despite them being uh splatter movies <laughs> you know they have really good notes. They're pretty thorough. Yeah. Exactly. So that that's now a DVD extra rather than a a physical extra. So a very, I recommend the DVD. It actually looks very, very good. If you don't need English subtitles, there is a Blu-ray issued um, last year in Japan by Toy Video. Don't know the quality uh, personally if um, if it's a good HD version of it, but um, it's it is out there in Blu-ray form, and maybe we'll come to the West um, eventually, whether if Animego or Maybe Criterion is looking for more Gosha titles. There's uh, there's more out there, so who knows. Uh, but that's the availability for you. So uh, let's uh, finish this one off. We'll uh, get in, go into the think tank to um, see what the uh, next next logical facet of uh, Gosha's career, uh, w- what the next facet is that we're going to explore. So um, through a main review and through some quick text in between. But I uh, hope you enjoyed. And uh, this has been Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. Our website with all our other shows is located at podcastonfire.com. We also do bonus episodes every now and again. Maybe squeeze in that Ghost in the Shell live action bonus episode um, in the future. Who knows? Uh, to, you know, even, even Oshi approved of the casting of uh, Scarlet. So... Say hey, he's not uh, he's not being grumpy about uh, they're making the live action remake and they're not getting it right. Nope. He's probably just glad that his cash his uh his check was cashed. Yeah, it's, it sounded more like <laughs> I approve of this message. <laughs> no, that's fine. So, he, whatever. He, he he has no dog in that fight. Really, it's uh you know he's uh. Yeah. He's uh, doing other stuff, hopefully. Anyway, uh, email us, uh, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Hit us up on social media, the handy buttons at the top of our website to Facebook, Twitter, to our iTunes feed, to Stitcher Radio, where you can stream us, but you can also stream us uh, not just from their website, but also on the applications. Available uh, for download for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And I write about the Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies over at SoGoodReviews.com. My video reviews are at SlazyKVideo.com. My tweets are at, at SoGoodReviews. And finally, Coffee John, a little plug for vCinema. Well, again, vCinema is located at vCinemaShow.com. 
We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, we're just V Cinema, and then on Twitter, we're also V Cinema Show. V S H O W. That is. Okay, excellent. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, I've been Kenobi, and with me was Coffin John, and he has schooled me on Japanese cinema and show once again. So say goodbye, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly, but bye. <laughs>